Again to badquaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Thursday, August 30th, 2012, and I was lazy yesterday. It's true. Um, I had a, well, eh, maybe some excuse more than just being lazy. I had some stuff that I really needed to get done out in the garden, and, uh, and the internet was being spotty, so I was like, okay, there's my excuse. But also, you know, I really just kind of needed some some thinking time yesterday. Uh, weather fronts move through and come and go. And if you're new, if you're a new listener, if you're if you know if you haven't heard me talk about this before, I uh, I have a, a variety of whiny medical issues. So some days, uh, you know, it gets a little difficult to just to function in the normal way, and and I just need a moment or two to to kind of escape and do something else. And that's a great thing about the garden, really. Uh, you know, a garden can work you silly if you let it. But it's it's nice to be able to just get out and do something brainless and relax and, and, uh, and you know, just throw off your responsibilities a little bit. And that's what I did yesterday. I, uh, we, we've got a, a lot of garlic that's coming in. I, I dug a bunch of garlic. I dug a uh, shallot uh, that, was, that was ready to be brought out. And I got two of my planting beds uh, prepared for, for the fall garden. If, you, um, if you're unfamiliar with a fall garden, um, it's really pretty nice to have a fall garden because there's a lot of things that you can plant right about this time of year. Uh, as soon as the worst of the heat of, of the summer uh, breaks and you start to go into the cooler uh, autumn temperatures. Um, the earlier you can get stuff in the ground, the and, and of course I'm in Ohio, so it's according to where you're at on the uh, you know on the heat scale and so forth. But at least here in Ohio, around the last of August, first of September, uh, you can often get a pretty good amount of seeds in the ground and still get a decent harvest out. You want you want to get things that are fairly cold hardy, salads and so forth. Uh, that are cold hardy. Um, some of the other things like, um, oh, I've got um, uh, broccoli plants that I've been babying along all summer. They don't do very well at all during the summer, but I have them stashed in shade underneath a, a tree so that so that they don't get direct sunlight uh, during the hot part of the year. And now as we come into autumn, I can bring them out and let them come into their you know full sunlight and full maturity. And they're already starting to produce tiny little broccoli heads. But here in Ohio, you can get broccoli well up into December, even with harsh weather. Uh, they're a real hardy plant. So, you now I know some of, my, some of the listeners are saying, like, eh, is this the gardening podcast? I thought this was the crazy anarchist podcast. Well, you know, I hate to say it, but if you're really a good anarchist, you need to be a gardener, too. Because, you know, part of... Part of understanding liberty, it's hard to have liberty without independence. And it's hard to be independent if you're existing on a complete uh, government-controlled food-providing uh, system, a food-providing network. How really independent are you if everything that you require for survival comes to you by way of government-approved trucks and government-approved corporations and government-approved farms? You know, how, how, uh, how radical are you, really, if that's the case? And, you know, I was going to talk a little bit about this later on in the podcast, uh, about uh, how easy it is to garden. It's not easy to farm. Farming is completely different. Farming is a real skill that uh, if you're going to successfully farm, there's a lot to know. But gardening, uh, you know, you can get a little, uh, a little bucket or something and get some decent soil in there and start growing tomatoes and learn how to garden. You can learn 
pretty quickly, even if you're what you know people consider a bad gardener, you have the the you know they they talk about people with green thumb and people with a you know a brown thumb or whatever black thumb, indicating that they can't grow anything in their garden. But even if you're not good at growing plants in a pot or in your backyard or whatever, uh, with a little practice, you you'd be surprised how easy it is to get past the the simple mistakes that everybody makes. Usually in regards to you know, uh, overwatering or underwatering and sunlight, too much or too little sunlight and frosts. You get past those things and uh, and the overfeeding, underfeeding issues that come with, with especially with potted plants. But anyway, uh, so I said it's not the, uh, the gardening podcast and then I talk for five minutes about gardening, right? But that was my excuse for yesterday. I, I, I did have some connection problems that that gave me an excuse to say, you know, um, I think I'm going to go out in the garden and just get the, the beds prepared for, for fall gardening. So, uh, so I did that, and I sloughed off my responsibilities to my listeners, and so there we go. Now, the other thing that I did that is <laughs> um, not fulfilling my responsibilities is that I'm way behind on email again. It seems like I, I just never get caught up on my email so if you've emailed me in the last week or so and I haven't got back to you, it's it's just that you know I'm I'm just being lazy. I'm letting things overwhelm me, but I'll I'll uh, do my best to get to the email and catch up to it. Uh, and if, and if you want, I haven't said this in a while. If you want to email me, uh, you can just email Ben at badquaker.com. Uh, and you know anything you want to talk about. Uh, Anything at all, just go ahead and feel free to email me there. And I try to read all, you know, get, I try to read all my em- emails and answer them, but uh, sometimes I just get behind. So, like I said, if you have emailed me and I haven't responded, just hang in there. Uh, I found some going all the way back to Porkfest that I have failed to answer, so I need to get back in there and really uh, and go through those thoroughly. But okay, so now uh, I was. <laughs> You know, I, I like to listen to my friends uh, uh, Michael Dean and Nima Fadati over there at the um, Freedom Fiends podcast, and Michael has the, uh, the the Anarchy Gumbo podcast, and I like to listen to them whenever possible. And there's something that Michael talks about, he, he, he says all the time, we're not going to talk about tyranny today, we don't want to talk about tyranny today. I'm not mocking his voice, I'm just, that's my general mocking voice for everybody. But anyway, um, and I like that phrase, tyranny today. He's talking about, you know, the current events that are happening, and and it's so easy to get caught up in every little thing that's happening. It's so easy, especially if you try to watch, you know, like network television or any of the news on TV or anything like that. It's really easy to get caught up in whatever the latest thing that you're supposed to be looking at. It's, It's really easy to get caught up in that stuff. And it's really easy to get caught up in the... You know, even if you step away from mainstream news and the mainstream media, and and you start looking at, you know, all the um, all the cop raids that are happening, the SWAT raids that are happening, the police abuses that are going on, and and you know, you start thinking about you you hear uh, all the different uh, t- well tyranny today. You know, every time somebody's tomato garden is. Uh, is destroyed by a city because they didn't have a permit or or you know you get caught up on these things it's really easy to just let them overwhelm overwhelm your mind and you get so frustrated but uh having said all that i do plan on talking about a little bit of tyranny today on on today's podcast i usually don't do current events and news and things but i want to touch on it a little bit today um if i ever get around to actually talking about my topic but before i do that um I'm going to say two words, and I don't want you to panic. Long-time listeners, just relax. I'm going to say two words. Walter Block. Don't panic. Don't panic. I'm not going to spend an hour bashing Walter Block like I've done so many times. I actually want to defend Walter Block because he he was put in a very uncomfortable position in the last few days, and um, and he faced something that he's never seen happen before. And it, and I can tell it, it upset him. I can tell by his writing that it upset him, and uh, and it it kind of saddens me because I like Walter Block. You know, I I say uh, things pretty regularly. When he says something stupid, I I jump on it and point out, hey, there's Walter Block saying stupid things again. But you know, 
No matter that occasionally he does say stupid things, I really like Walter Block, and I've learned a ton from the guy. And specifically, one of the things that, that Walter Block, uh, a, a train of thought that he pretty much invented, and, uh, and it's in, the, in, the, in a very controversial area, you know, um, if you get around Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals and even libertarians, the topic of abortion comes up and people's, uh, there's immediately like hate plugs shove into their ears and all they do is start repeating slogans over and over. And, and that's really pretty much universal with, with everybody in the political world. You just say the word abortion, or you say pro-choice, or you say pro-life, you say any of those key words, and hate plugs shove into their ears, and their brains just shut off, and they just start repeating brainless slogans over and over and over. And it's really sad, you know, because this is, this is an issue, this is a real problem, and uh, none of the mainstream thought addresses the problem in any kind of a logical way. But Walter Block, years ago, Walter Block came up with what I think is uh, a really intelligent position on the issue of abortion. And I'm going to try to explain Walter Block's position as best I can, and, um, and I hope I do him duty in this. And, and maybe, uh, maybe it'll bring a little bit of, a lot of light, because he tried to explain his position at the, uh, down at the uh, Ron Paul rallies that they were having in Florida. And he actually uh, got a lot of hate over it, a lot of screaming at him and, and hisses and boos and things. And I think that's what people do when they don't want to think. They just react with, with hate, you know. So I'm going to try real quick to just explain Walter Block's position on the topic. He doesn't, he doesn't call it abortion or pro-choice or pro-life. He calls it evictionism. Evictionism. Now, let me try to explain this. First off... Um, do you absolutely know when life begins? Now, you might, if, you know, let's stop right now. Let's stop. Don't stop exactly what you're doing. Pull the hate plugs out of your ears because I'm not asking you the question you think I'm asking you. I'm not asking you to chant slogans of pro-life or pro-choice. I'm asking you to pull the hate plugs out of your ears and just think and listen for a second, okay? Now, do you absolutely know with absolute certainty when life begins, when, when, a, when tissue becomes human. Can you say with absolute certainty? How can you? From a molecular level, the point of conception brings together the, the, the parts that are required to make a human being. But is that a human being? I don't know. And I'll tell you, it's my opinion that nobody knows, that no human being knows exactly for sure how to answer this. We all have opinions. I have an opinion, but it's just an opinion. We don't really know. Because, because honestly, we don't really know if a human has a soul. We, many of us believe humans have souls. I believe a human has a soul. But I can't take it out and show it to you. I can't prove it. It's, it's strictly something that I believe. So how can I say exactly when a human life begins? I think it happens. I think it begins at conception. I think that. I believe that. But that doesn't make it true just because I believe it. It could very easily be, as some argue, that a human is not a human until it can live on its own. Prior to that, it's part of its mother's body. Now, I don't agree with that. But I can see the logic in it. I can understand why people believe it. And other people say that a human is not really a human until it can survive on its own. And some people put that point after birth, well after birth. There was recently, there was um, uh, a scientific discussion, I believe it was, oh, I can't remember now. I think it happened in Australia where there was a serious scientific discussion about whether um, newborns were actually human because they still couldn't survive on their own and whether it was ethical to have post-birth abortions. Now, you know, again, pull the hate plugs out of your ears, and let's just talk about this without wild emotions. Let's just think this through for a minute, okay? I don't know as an absolute fact when life begins. I can make an assumption that life begins at some time prior to birth. 
Now I feel that way because you know uh, what's the difference between two inch if a, if a, if this baby is one side of a two inch line or on the outside of that two inch line? How does that make it a human? How does going from inside the 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 womb of the mother to outside of the womb of the mother? How does that magically make it a human? How does um, how does two months before that? How does that make it a human? How does having ears, how does that make it a human? Because there's plenty of humans that have uh, had their ears cut off for one reason or another. How, how it is had developing fingers, how does that make it a human? It doesn't because there are humans without fingers. So we have to, we have to break this down and, and have some kind of a logical process here. The problem is, as far as I can tell, there is no logical process. There is no logical line to draw and say, now it's become a human. So if we're going to follow the zero aggression principle and follow it thoroughly, then you have to say, we don't know when that becomes a human. So we have to give the, 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 the benefit of the doubt and err on a side of safety and not aggress upon the unborn, even to the point of conception. And, all right, now we have a problem. We have a property rights problem. Because the woman's body is her property. And she should have the ability to choose whether or not to have something attached to her body living off of her. Okay, so now we have a confliction here between the zero aggression principle that says we don't know when the actual human life began, so we have to assume at its earliest point giving the benefit of the doubt. Therefore, abortion at any stage is violating the zero aggression principle. On the other hand, clearly... The woman's body belongs to her. And clearly, if something is feeding off of her body, she has the right to cause it to stop feeding off of her body. So clearly, property rights require that a woman have the right to, a, to an abortion. Now, you, you, see the, you see the conundrum that we're in? You see the, the, uh, the horrible position that if we, if we accept the zero aggression principle, we have to reject Abortion, but if we accept property rights, we have to embrace abortion. This is a really strange position that libertarians find themselves in, and it's not an easy position. Ron Paul takes the position of pro-life, whereas Murray Rothbard took the position of, of pro-choice. So it's not an easy proposition, and yet, and I've talked all this time, and I haven't even explained Walter Block's idea. Walter Block, I believe, has come up with the solution to this. Now I'm I'm breaking a little bit early for the for the commercial break here, and I'm doing that on purpose because once I get into Walter Block's discussion, once uh, I get into his explanation of his uh, theory of evictionism, I don't want to stop for a commercial. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna stop now for the commercial. Stick with me. I'll be right back. I'd like to talk to you about Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. The Liberty Classroom is a collection of courses on history and Austrian economics presented in an easy, convenient way. There are video files and audio files you can download. You can participate in discussions online in the discussion boards. And there are live sessions with Tom Woods and the other educators where you can directly interact with the instructors. Now, who is this for? It's for anyone who realizes that they didn't get the real story in government-approved schools. It's also great for homeschoolers and unschoolers. Join Tom Woods and his team, and they'll equip you with one of the very best tools the Liberty Movement has to offer, knowledge, real knowledge in a usable form. At Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, you can get all this for only $99 a year. Now, that's less than the cost of one movie DVD a month. This gets you access to absolutely everything on their site, all the courses plus additional courses that will be added later, the discussion forums, the live sessions, everything. So how do you do this? You go to badquaker.com. You click on the banner for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. By using that link, you'll let Tom know that I sent you, and you'll help keep badquaker.com on the Internet. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. And I should give a disclaimer right now. Um, all the opinions that I'm saying are... Uh, I, I'm doing my best to explain Walter Block's position. And any aside opinions on that or any mistakes that I make on Walter Block's opinion are, are me. It's, it's me that's doing that. Uh, so if I, get, if I misrepresent Walter Block, it's my fault. And if I represent him properly, then I've done my job. But in either effect, 
none of the opinions that I'm expressing now have anything to do with the opinions of the sponsors that you just heard the commercials for. So, okay, so uh, disclaimers out of the way, and let's get back to the topic. And what I'm going to try to explain as best I can is Walter Block's position on what he calls evictionism. And again, the setup is that uh, if we thoroughly observe the zero aggression principle, then we have to assume life at the safest possible moment. And since we don't know, this is, a, this is an avenue that we can only guess about, then we have to assume life begins at conception because prior to conception, you don't have all the actual DNA material to make an entire human. So prior to conception, you don't have the components of a human. But at the moment of conception, you have all the components to make a whole human. They're all right there. Uh, and any argument can be made in any direction, but but rather than make an assumption as to whether you know at what point the human begins, to f- to thoroughly follow the zero aggression principle, we have to assume life begins at conception. However, the problem is with property rights. If the the mother, the woman, owns her body, absolutely owns her body, and nobody else can, nobody else can own a right to part of her body. So if she, in ownership of her body, chooses not to have something attached to her living off of her, then she should have the absolute right to reject anything that attaches and tries to live off of her. Now, you have to be consistent with this. Again, if you're going to really stick with the zero aggression principle and if you're going to really stick with property rights, then you have to take those two contrary positions and you have to understand them. And Walter Block comes in in his evictionism theory and provides us the solution, and I think it's a really good solution. Now, Walter Block says the problem with abortion is not uh, that you move the unborn baby to the outside of the mother's body. That's not the problem. That's eviction. You can evict the thing, the thing, the child. But the problem is, in the current process, in the current state-sponsored and state-authorized process, you don't just evict the child, you kill it. Now think about this for a minute. It's against the law in almost all civilized countries, or what we might call civilized countries, it's against the law to do a lot of research on what I'm about to describe. But that's because governments interfere in medicine and in science. If governments weren't interfering in medicine and in science, then Walter's Walter's idea here could easily be be uh, become a practical solution within, you know, a very short period of time, maybe months, maybe a year or less, maybe a couple of years at the most. This could be a viable solution. So here's Walter's proposal: If you could remove the unborn without harming it, then you would have solved the property rights issue, and you would have obeyed the zero aggression principle. Now, the problem with removing um, the unborn is that the current methods do not leave it intact. The current methods kill it. So all you have to do is have a method of removing the baby, the unborn, in whatever, however terminology you want to play with. You, you just need a method of removing it without harming it. And, you know, there are far more people wanting to adopt children then there are children available to be adopted. This is one of the arguments that the pro-life people always bring up. There's no such thing as an unwanted baby. There are plenty of people begging for the opportunity to have a child, and they can't for whatever reason. Well, here's a solution, and the market would provide this solution if it weren't for the interference of the governments. The market would fill that need would fill both the needs, the need of the mother to evict something that she doesn't want attached to her body, and the need of other parents who desperately want to have a child. This would be, both these two needs would be fulfilled if the market were left to itself, if the governments of the world didn't interfere with the market. All you need is a simple procedure to remove that uh, unwanted um, part of the, of the one woman's body and provide a nurturing atmosphere for it, either uh, in a laboratory setting or 
uh, or, you know, um, actually implant it into another human body for it to, to be able to grow and live. Now, this is the perfect solution, and it's not that scientifically hard to imagine. If you can take a heart out of one body and put it into another, you can take a lung, a kidney, a liver. If you can take any of these things out of one body and put it into another, then certainly it ought to be feasible to take an entire human body out of a body and put it into another one. How hard could it be? I mean, sure, from a scientific point of view, from a medical point of view, it would be tricky. But how tricky was it to remove a heart out of one person and put it into another? How tricky was that? How tricky was it to keep a heart viable while you transplant it from one body to another body? You see, this is just this is a simple matter of procedure. But it's, it's prevented from happening by the governments of the world. The, the market has a, a perfect solution for this. Now, so Walter Block was explaining this, what he calls his eviction, evictionism or eviction theory, at one of the Ron Paul gatherings, and he just got horribly booed and horribly treated over this. I, I want to read real quick, I want to read um, his take of this. I got this from lourockwell.com, and I'll put a link on, uh, to the, in today's show notes at Bad Quaker. And, uh, and, and if you want to read the whole article f for yourself, but I just want to buzz through this really quick. Again, this is for the purpose of defending Walter Block, because uh, I, I think he was treated horribly. I don't think there was any reason to treat Walter Block the way that they treated him at the Ron Paul gathering. So I'm going to read this really quick for you. I am not sure that my theory of evictionism is correct. There may well be flaws in it. But if different libertarian viewpoints are prevented from being heard or discussed at a libertarian convention, your seeming goal, our precious philosophy, will never progress. It will forever remain exactly as it is today. And then he goes on to say, I am utterly convinced that we need to do better, not only in spreading the word, but in, but in improving it too. And then again, he goes on to say, if we are to truly bring justice to the world, we must be open to allowing our views to be improved. How else can this be done but to allow other libertarian voices to be heard? And with regard to the issue of abortion, not only is the general populace greatly divided on this, on, on this issue, but so is our libertarian community. For example, no less of a libertarian than Ron Paul is pro-life, while Murray Rothbard, Mr. Libertarian, was pro-choice. This, too, is the position of Gary Johnson, presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. If we cannot so much as in a civil manner discuss this controversy, how can we ever possibly reconcile our community? How can we achieve greater understanding of it? You people acted disgracefully on the on on that oh I see. You people acted disgracefully on that one occasion, but you are not a disgrace, period. Rather, as supporters of Ron Paul, as avid supporters of his, you are potentially among those who are uh, he's wrong here, but uh, potentially among those who are our last best hope for a civilized order. Trust in the state much there, Walter? Okay, back to it. So please rethink your outrageous behavior and resolve to help those of us who sincerely want to promote liberty, even if we are upon occasion mistaken, as it is possible in this case. But by the way, uh, but, but the way to demonstrate this is not by attempting to silence your fellow libertarians. Rather, it is to refute their argument. The notion that an idea based on the libertarian premise of non-aggression and property rights is beyond discussion is abhorrent to our philosophy. Even if we are not open to different ideas, what hope is there for humanity? The only way to get that proverbial one millionth of an inch closer to the truth is through a vigorous competition of ideas. And, he, and the final line I'm going to read to you, he says, Only in that way can we possibly succeed in turning the world in our direction of individual liberty, justice, and peace. Well, I don't agree with Walter in his assertion that, 
you know, the, the supporters of Ron Paul are the last great hope of humanity, and and only by us arguing these things out will, uh, you know, will we find individual liberty, justice, and peace. I don't agree with him on that because, um, because I don't trust in the state, and everything he's talking about and everything he's said in the past is basically using excuses to get control of the state and make it do what we want it to do, uh, using the vehicle of government um, to try to make government better is uh, illogical nonsense, gobbledygook, and any any other rude thing I can say to Walter Block while maintaining a language. Uh, you know, <laughs> however, I've gone into enough of that in the past. I don't really need to go into it today. But what I want to emphasize is that Walter Block is absolutely correct when he's saying that if we can't have a discussion on hard issues like abortion. If we can't civilly among us talk about these things and and work them out and figure out the details and try to logically, without slogans, without emotion, without hate, taking the hate plugs out of your ears and hearing what other people are saying, if we can't work these things out, really then how are we any better than, than the liberals or the conservatives or the republicans or the democrats or how are we any better? If we can't use these wonderful principles that we understand of property rights and zero aggression, how can we use those to better ourselves and better a society if we can't hear the arguments of others among us that we disagree with? So it's imperative. And I think Walter's idea is pretty good. I think the market could fix the abortion issue very quickly if there wasn't government interference in every possible direction on the issue. So... Um, so that's, uh, that's my take on Walter Block's opinion uh, on his idea of evictionism, and that's my take on the abortion issue. I, I do believe that abortion is a violation of the zero aggression principle, and I think, um, I think that we shouldn't take a risk on killing a human that is absolutely innocent. We shouldn't take a risk of killing it if it's possible that it is actually human. We shouldn't take that risk. On the other hand, I absolutely support the idea that a woman's body is her own body. And these two things are in direct uh, uh, violation of each other. Now, I'll say this one last thing, that Walter doesn't go this direction. So this is me and me alone saying this. If I had, let's say I owned a piece of land. Let's say I owned uh, 10 acres of land. And on one small corner of that land, there was a person who was destitute. Uh, they were absolutely infam uh, famished. They were they're poor. They have almost no possessions whatsoever. And they've squatted on a little tiny corner of my land where they're eating apples off of one of my apple trees. And let's just say I have apple trees in abundance and I have my 10 acres of land, which is a lot of land for me. I would be happy the whole rest of my life if I had 10 acres and a little apple orchard. So let's just say I have 10 acres and an apple orchard and there's somebody squatting under one of my trees way back in the back lot and they're eating the apples off of my tree. I think I have the right to kill them. I think that. I believe that. I believe trespassers on my property, I have the right to kill them. I believe that. However, I believe it's not necessary for me to kill them if I can deal with the issue in some other way. So then, property rights give me the right to kill this trespasser who is on my property eating my apples. I have the right to kill him. But I might choose not to. I can choose not to and reserve my property rights. I can go to him and say, look, I see that you're starving. I see that you need very little space. And if you'll agree to not become a burden on me, you can live here a little longer. And if he'll stay within his area, then that would be very nice of me not to kill him. But I reserve the right to kill trespassers. Now somebody might say, well, you're an evil person. You want to kill somebody just for being on your land. No, I didn't say I would kill them. I said as a property owner, it is within property rights to defend my property. And so within the zero aggression principle and within the concept of property rights, I can kill a trespasser and still be uh, within property rights and the zero aggression principle. But I can also, as a human being, 
choose to let that person squat on my property and eat my apples. I can do that. And so I would say to the pregnancy situation, you, you have the property right to evict. But if, if we just had a market way, if, if the market were free to allow the eviction to take place without the death of the child, that would be much better. And so, and so that's my position on that. And I, I hope it doesn't offend my listeners. I think if it does offend, maybe go back and listen again. And again, like I said before, take the hate plugs out of your ears and stop chanting slogans. And if you have a better solution that adheres to the zero aggression principle and respects property rights, then then express that opinion in a in a clear non-emotional way and bring that into the discussion in in the libertarian world. We need it. We need to hear that that opinion. If you have an idea, then then bring it forth. But um but keep the hate out of it. Keep the slogans out of it. And let's move towards something a little bit better. And I think that's ultimately what Walter is asking that we do here. Now, uh, my little poke at Walter, though, you know, it's funny that he says that we should um, we should hear all these discussions. We should not just shout somebody down. We should hear these discussions. And then when it comes to Wendy McElroy or Stefan Molyneux not being uh, supporters of the Ron Paul campaign. And what does he do? From his pulpit, he shouts them down. He doesn't bother to even examine their whole opinion. He never really got in and understood uh, Wendy or Steph's argument. He never took the time. He just shouted them down. So, Walter, we all need to be consistent on these things. We all need to take the hate plugs out of our ears, and we all need to listen to each other. Now, um... I want to uh, again. That was uh, that was a current event that was happening this week, and that and there's a link to uh, Walter's article uh, in the show notes for today, and you can read his whole thing over there at uh, at lewrockwell.com. And I want to throw out also something else about the uh, the Ron Paul situation that's happened this week with the, all the Republicans down there in Florida. You know, I keep hearing over and over that the that you know that the Romulans, uh, the the Romney people, the Romulans did this and the Romulans did that and the Romulans took over the GOP and the Romulans were controlling the convention and the Romulans were shutting down the the Paulites and all these all this blather. Um, you need to realize when you think about Mitt Romney and his followers, you need to realize that you're looking at the wrong end of the puppet strings when you wonder about. You know whether or not the the Romulans are controlling the GOP. You need to look at the puppet strings and follow them back to where they start at. Don't you're looking at the wrong end. You're looking at the puppet, assuming that the puppet controls the puppet master. Folks, th- how many people are really fanatical Mitt Romney fans? Of all the people that I know in real life and all the people that I know of on the internet, I really only know one person who is really, really a true Mitt Romney fan, and they have been for years. Everybody else I know who, who claims they're going to vote for Mitt Romney um, does so almost with a cringe, like, yeah, that's who I'm going to... Because they believe this lesser of two evils nonsense. And so because they fall for this lesser of two evils nonsense, they're embracing what they feel to be their only choice. Well, those people are not... You know they're not radicals. They're not radical supporters of of Mitt Romney. They're they're desperate people who are filled with fear or filled with hate, and they're reacting because of that. And they're convinced that all of their problems can be solved, or at least some of their problems can be solved by trusting the government to fix the government. So these people who are voting for the lesser of two evils, or these people who think that somehow. You know, the Republicans are going to fix things if they can ever finally get back into power. That They're not the ones that are controlling the GOP and controlling. Really, follow those strings back. And uh, the entire GOP, the entire party, the entire Republican Party, is controlled by a very small pocket of little neocons in and around the Washington area. Uh, people like Bill Kristol and, and, and his, uh, his like. And these, ultimately, if you go back far enough, the same people pretty much control both the Democrats and the Republicans. 
If you really think about it, where are they getting their money, Goldman Sachs? Where are they getting their money, General Electric? Where are they getting their money, Monsanto? You see, they're really all controlled by the same, the same strings and the same puppet master. It all goes back to the state. It all goes back to this bigger image of a thing that controls the government, that controls the mainstream media, that controls the major corporations. It all goes back to the same thing. So don't blame the Romulites or the Romulans. Don't blame them for what happened at the GOP convention. Realize that it's much bigger. This puppet master is much bigger and much more evil. And it's not a person. It's not a single individual person or even a, even a committee. Okay, I'm going to break again for our uh, last commercial break. And when I get back, we're going to go into some more, um, uh, what does Michael call it? Tyranny of the day? Tyranny today? Yeah, tyranny today. Okay, I'll be right back. Hang with me. Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Okay, again, again, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. And I was talking about uh, voting for the lesser of evils and the whole nonsense down there in Florida with all of the Republicans fighting and stomping and yelling at each other. Keep in mind, when you're thinking of all these things politically and the political parties and all their posturing and all the nonsense, really, in America, only about half the people vote. Only about half the people vote. And, and when they do surveys and they say, why, why do, you, do you vote or do you not vote or why do you vote or why do you don't vote or why, you know, and, and so we have all these surveys telling, well, you know what, I used to work in that industry. Uh, in addition to being in the aerospace industry, in the defense industry, and, and the, you know, chemical manufacturing, I was also in the survey industry, in the, uh, in the market research field. And I can tell you something. Uh, don't believe anything you hear from a survey. I absolutely don't believe anything you hear from a survey. And there's all kinds of reasons I can say that. But, but one thing to keep in mind is, um, who answers a survey? You think about this. Do you answer surveys? What kind of people answer surveys? The vast majority of people who will actually stick through, and, and especially if it's a survey of any depth, to really get a survey uh, that's useful and you have serious depth on it, you need to have open-ended questions and you need to let people hear uh, or I'm sorry, let people really express themselves. You can't just say, you know, um, uh, what they typically do is they have the five standards. It's uh, um, completely agree, somewhat agree, neither agree nor disagree, completely dis uh, somewhat disagree, or completely disagree. Uh, I think I said that right. Anyway, there's these five things that they try to feed you into one of those categories. Or sometimes they'll just give you a blank yes or no, or true or false, or agree or disagree. But, but either way, all these are false questions with false results. And again, who are they asking? Who are they asking these questions to? Who has a tendency to stay on the phone for half an hour, 45 minutes, answering in-depth questions? Um, old people. Old people. And sadly, uh, a halfway decent surveyor, a halfway decent person doing their surveying, can, um, can feed that person the questions in such a way that in the vast majority of people who are answering your questions, you can get any results you want out of them. I'm telling you that from experience. When, when a, a person who knows how to do surveys can ask the right questions in the right way and get any answer they want. So really, the survey is dependent as much on the people doing the survey and what kind of results they want as anything else. Okay, so um, I need to move on because that's not really what I wanted to talk about. Um, 
almost half of Americans don't vote. Here's another thing. Almost half Americans are on food stamps. What do you think? You think those mostly vote? You think people who get free food from the government pretty much vote? Probably do. Uh, between 1995 and 2011, now this is going through uh, eight years of Democrat control and eight years of Republican control of the White House, from 95 into 2011, 277 billion dollars were handed out in farm subsidies and conservation payments. Conservation payments means they pay you not to farm your property because you know oh we have to uh, we have to you know be careful and not kill the the uh, some kind of mouse or something that lives in your field. Two hundred seventy seven billion dollars handed out in uh, in in uh, ninety five to two thousand eleven. Now, of all those farmers and all those people who got those farm subsidies, do you think they vote? Do you think if somebody seriously came on the scene and said, you know what, we're going to cut all government influence in farming, we're going to cut all government subsidies in farm, all government in, uh, interference in the farming market, we're going to cut all that out, and we're going to cut out all food stamps, and we're going to let the market do its thing, do you think that person would get elected? Do you think those people who get farm subsidies vote? Do you think those people who get free food and food stamps from the government, do you think they vote? Gary Johnson's new ad uh, uh, is about health, uh, government health care. Now, if there was a serious conversation and not election doublespeak, which is what's in that ad, it's just election, it's election doublespeak. But if we had a serious conversation about government interference in, in health care, do you think Gary Johnson would come right out and say, yeah, let's eliminate the FDA, let's eliminate the AMA, let's eliminate all government interference in the medical industry, in, all, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, let's eliminate all government interference in these industries. Do you think Gary Johnson would have any chance of even having Libertarian Party support? You see what I'm saying? This is a bigger issue uh, the the government itself and the money that it shuffles around and pushes into places is far more than any little little, little libertarian position on something. We, we um, let me let me push on through my notes. So uh, so back to Gary Johnson. There's there's hope that Gary Johnson. Well, you can you can pretty much bet that Gary Johnson is going to get the standard three hundred thousand votes that pre, that Libertarian Party candidates usually get for president. That's about how many Libertarians uh, regularly vote for the president. About three hundred thousand, sometimes three hundred fifty thousand, somewhere right in there. It's possible with all the Ron Paul coverage, Gary Johnson could get half a million votes and break the record. Uh, break. Um, I think Harry Brown was the one that got the highest amount of votes. But it's possible Gary Johnson could break that. So he could get half a million votes, maybe, in the upcoming election. The problem is, there are over 300 million people in the U.S., and about half of them vote. That's about 150 million. Gary Johnson might be able to get half a million, and there are 150 million people voting. So what kind of real influence can you have? This is the practical end uh, we're talking about here with, with electoral politics. The practical end is you can't. You can't have an influence on this. There's too much money. There's too much power. Uh, 62 million Americans in 2012 received Social Security payments. Old folks vote. Old folks vote. And they're not going to vote for Gary Johnson if he's honest and says, I'm going to kill Medicare. And if he's a consistent libertarian, that's what he has to say. And some people talk about well, maybe we can influence the election by splitting the vote. Maybe if we split the vote, then we can have a say. People will pay attention to us. Well, if you take a look at Europe, all of Europe's elections, pretty much all of them, are split between three, four, five, ten parties. All of the votes in Europe are split. And look at the mess they're facing. They're facing exactly what we're facing, except it's worse there. Worse finances, worse oppression. It's worse. So no, splitting the vote, trying to influence the government, again, the practical side of it, is it won't work. And why won't it work? Because you can't do wrong and make right. You can't do bad things, which is what government does, 
and make something right. We have to stick to principles. If you stick to honest principles like the zero aggression principle, if you, if you follow that and you do good, then the long run will be good. But you can't do good by using the aggression of government to get the things you want from government, to make government do the things you think it should do. When you do that, you're using the aggression of government. Now, I'm not going to get into a big thing about uh, the argument of uh, principle versus pragmatic um, in voting that, you know, if you're a longtime listener, you should know that, I, that I've come to the position that I feel that voting is immoral because the entire democratic process is immoral and voting is part of the democratic process. So, but, but I'm not going to get into that argument. If you want to hear that argument, uh, I, I still have in the works, I'm planning an, a debate with Mark Edge from Free Talk Live. So as soon as Mark can get his notes together and get them back to me, we can work on a time for a debate, and you can hear my side of it there. What I'm talking about today is just strictly the pragmatic idea that voting or having a candidate or winning a libertarian party candidacy or whatever might have some kind of a positive effect on the government. It's not, because two wrongs won't make a right. That's the, that's the, um, uh, the moral end of it. That's the, the principled argument. But also, just from uh, even if you leave, leave aside the principles and leave aside the moral of it, the numbers mean that there's just no possible way that libertarians can have any kind of a positive effect on, uh, on government. I want to take you in a slightly different direction here. There's a story from Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Business Week that says that uh, $14.5 billion of food was stolen by, by politicians in one Indian state. I, if memory recalls India is divided up into 28 states plus territories that are disputed with China and Pakistan and so forth. But if I, if I recall, there are 28 states in India. And in this one state alone that they were looking at, $14.5 billion of food was stolen out of their government uh, food uh, uh, program. Now, this, all this food was supposed to be to feed the poorest people in India. It was supposed to go to... There, there are 350 million families living in India below India's uh, poverty line, and India considers poverty if you if you live on less than 50 cents a day, 50 U.S. cents a day, half a dollar. If you can live on ha less than half a dollar a day in India, you're considered poor. You're considered below the poverty line. And 350 million families in India are below the poverty line of half a dollar a day per person. Now, uh, they get really funny about uh, what they call a family in India. It's kind of fuzzy uh, what their average number is. The, no the numbers are really deceptive because it changed, changes dramatically from one province to another. But if we average around four to five, and that's, and that's kind of going with their numbers, if we average around four to five uh, people per family, if there's 350 million families, then what that means is there are more people living in India, living on less than 50 cents a day, than there are human beings that exist in all of North America. You think about it through, there's about 34 million people in Canada, there's about 113 million in Mexico, and there's about 300 million in the U.S. But there's roughly 1.5 billion people in India living on 50 cents a day or less. You think about this for a minute and you start to realize America is far richer than Americans realize. Think about living on 50 cents a day. Think about one and a half billion people living on 50 cents a day. And think about yourself and how much you spend on food and gas and all the things that we do to move around and do all the things that we do. 50 cents a day. How, how long could we exist like that? Well, Here's the problem. Government, uh, government dependency creates this kind of poverty. And that's what you have in India. You have the government uh, begins, you know, uh, the, the, more, the reason is not the point. What their initial purpose is is not the point. They probably had good purposes to begin with. But once you start having the government steal from, from one group of people to feed another group of people, then you create this dependency.
And and as free government food goes into a system, it distorts the market. It distorts the, the price mechanism of the market. And it actually creates incentives for farmers not to farm. I mean, really, why would you why would you really get out in the heat and in the sun and really, you know, uh, work hard like it takes to true farming takes a lot of hard work. Why would you do that if the price of food is fallen? Uh, if if the whole price structure of food is destroyed because the government comes into your village and dumps free food once a month, how how many people are going to want to buy your food that you've worked hard and sweated to 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 produce? If they can just go over and get in the government line and get free food. So there's this disincentive, and it causes the farmer to not bother to farm. Because why should he? He can get free food from the government from himself, for himself. So not only does he not need to farm for himself and for his own family, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't produce excess to sell to the, to the public. Because there's this dependence on the government. The government creates the dependence, and then the government creates poverty based on that uh, dependence. Because now, the, uh, not only is the farmer not producing what he would normally produce to feed himself and his family, he's not producing uh, the excess. And humans, any time that we're busy doing stuff, we produce an excess. Think about this for a minute. Now, this is just some simple math. If you have one tomato seed one pepper seed, one squash seed, three chickens, three rabbits or guinea pigs. Guinea pig will work just as well. I know that may sound kind of sickening to some people, but, but people live off of them. They're supposed to be pretty good meat. So you have one tomato seed, one pepper seed, one squash seed, three chickens, and three rabbits or guinea pigs, and plus one human to manage them. That little bit right there, and you will overproduce the amount of food that it takes for that person to live and you'll actually produce leisure time the person will have plenty of time to do other things because one tomato plant one pepper plant one squash plant three chickens and three rabbits is more than enough to feed you and produce excess and you're gonna have time for leisure now if you add to that if you add to that combination uh, one bicycle and a basket to go on that bicycle, you've got a business and you've got recreation. So now you've got uh, overproduction of material, of food, you've got leisure time, you've got recreation, and you've got a business. Now, but if you take that same combination of things and you add government regulation, then what you have is a loss of production and you have oppression. You have a disincentive to produce. And if you add... Uh, then now, okay, there's a disincentive. Oh, the government had better help you, shouldn't they? Right? So the government helps, and when the government helps, it destroys the incentive to produce any of those things, and you have starvation. And that's what's happening in India, and that's what's happening all over Africa, and that's what's happening in a lot of places. Because the government intervention, first in the, in the sense of regulation, produces oppression and production losses. And then the government steps in to help, and that creates starvation. Now, one last thing, if I can squeeze this in quick enough. Fox News has a story today on, on their website, uh, and I'll put a link to it in today's notes. Banking rules intended to push out dishonest employees are having a backlash. How about that? I'm going to read this real quick. Wells Fargo Home Mortgage has fired a Des Moines, Iowa worker over a 1963 incident at a laundromat involving a fake dime in the wake of the new employment guidelines. Uh, Richard Eggers, 68, was fired in July from his job as a customer service representative for putting a cardboard cutout of a dime in a washing machine nearly 50 years ago. Uh, it goes on to say, new federal banking employment guidelines were enacted in May of 2011, and the tougher standards were meant to clear out executives and mid-level bank employees that were guilty of transactional crimes. So the government goes in and they say, you know, there's all kinds of corruption in the banking industry. And there's all these cries for, oh, the government needs to do something. we got all the Occupy people. Oh, we gotta, we got to do, the government needs to do something. So the government comes in, puts in a bunch of regulations that say that anybody who uh, cheats using money um, should be fired from their banking job, right? So the government's trying to help, right? The government's trying to help. And what do they do? 
the the law has a backlash. Well, surprise, surprise, the law has a backlash, and somebody who who used a fake dime in a laundromat in 1963 gets fired. This goes to Bastiat's um, principle of that which is seen and that which is not seen. You see, anything the government does, there are un, there are uh, unintended consequences for that action. Everything the government does, no matter the intentions, it produces more evil. And so the opposite of that is for the government to do nothing. And at least if the government is doing nothing, they're not producing evil. But like anything else, if the government's doing nothing long enough, then we won't see the need for government, and then we won't have that government. But of course, that can't happen until there, like I say all the time, until there's a market for liberty. And the only way there can be a market for liberty is the government becomes so oppressive that we can't ignore it any further and people realize what kind of a hideous monster it is and then there'll be a market for liberty but we can't do that we can't get to that point by making government palatable we have to let it be as nasty as it can be for people to realize they don't need it they don't want it and then they hold embrace liberty folks for more on the zero aggression principle property rights and liberty go to badquaker.com and thank you very much for listening